Boop Graham. You know, we've been uh, we've been away for a while, and that's the best you can do. That was a disappointing. Our big return. Interesting. So, uh, Graham. Yeah. We've been gone for a while, but uh, in our absence, uh, I wrote an article for the Huffington Post as back in do. June, as I do, right? And do they uh, pay you for that? They do not pay me for that. Uh, they pay me in ego points. Fame and fortune. Well, fame. Citation. Is, I'm going to look it up. Okay, do so. Uh, I'll link to that article in the Science Monkey uh, webpage, sciencemonkey.ca. How to increase your growth in six easy steps. Is that how, how to pleasure your woman using just a toothpick and a there jar of Vegemite. Stop poking her with it. That's yes. Good. Okay, here we go. Bravo, what a great a start. an overpopulation problem. Yeah, so my, uh, my background, I'm an epidemiologist and uh, a bit of a demographer. And... Uh, I was a little tired of every time I speak to somebody, a layperson who doesn't really study international health or development or look at global affairs on a regular basis, the first thing they always say is, well, the problem with the world is that there are too many people. That's so annoying when you say that. But you've heard that too. Right? Yes. And before we go into the details of, of the article, I want to say that I got a lot of hate mail for it. I get hate mail for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. That one uh, caused a, a fair amount from both people on the left and the right. And then uh, Al Jazeera uh, contacted me to uh, interview me about that particular topic, um, which is specifically on this thing called the demographic transition. And that uh, interview got like 35 million downloads. So clearly there's a demand by people to understand this stuff. Too many people. (laughs) Or just the right amount. Just the right amount. And um, I'm curious to to know what you think about... um, the nature of world population growth. Is it too fast? Are there too many people? Um, should we do something about it? Chair is creaking a lot here. I don't know if that's picking it up. It's not my bones. It's chair I'm sitting on. Um, I think, if I think about it just quickly, I would say that there's an aggregate, necessarily, world population problem, but we probably have too many people in certain parts of the world and not enough in others. And it's maybe more of a distribution but problem. What's too many? How do we define oh, too many? what the local area can sort of support. This thing we call carrying capacity. Yeah. But that's a pretty vague term, right? I mean, look at uh, a place... Well, I know like, we have too, too many people because of fertilizer, right? which is artificially boosts crop yields. And so if we had a planet that just... We didn't have any artificial fertilizer, we probably wouldn't have as many people because our crop yields wouldn't be as great. Or we'd have just the same amount of people eating different kinds of less caloric food. Bugs. If we were all vegan, we probably wouldn't need as many, mm. as much agricultural products. So it depends how you look That's at the true. problem. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, the world distribution of people, almost everybody lives in South Asia and in East Asia. Mm-hmm. In fact, the most uh, densely populated places are Indonesia and Eastern Ch- Southeastern China. Right. And uh, uh, Indonesia, they don't produce all their food. They import their food much of it so the problem may not be the ability of that land to produce enough food it's the ability of the people to acquire it perhaps right. could argue. Okay. so so it's not a distribution of people problem it's a distribution of food problem. could be so there's um, an old economics definition of food security which says that food security consists of three things access availability and use 
So the availability of food is one thing. Is there enough of it? But even if there's enough of it, can you access it? Do you have money to do so? Do you have you know the wherewithal to walk into a supermarket and get it? Healthcare being available or accessible. Right. So if you think about the where we are right now in the Science Monkey Studios in downtown Toronto, there's a supermarket down the street. So there's lots of food available. But the homeless guy in front, can he access it? No, he can't. So is he food secure? Also, I've heard that Toronto has about enough food to last two days. Every city does. Yeah. Every city has about enough resources to last 48 hours. 48 hours. That's kind of scary. Yeah, kind of. Which is why I keep you near so I can also eat you if you need Because you're delicious, my chunky white friend. <laughs> We have to edit that out. That just, that just sounds wrong. Uh, okay, so back on the topic. So here's what I was arguing in the article. Um, it's not so much an argument as it is a proposal of a possibility. Okay, before Demog- we get into the article. Oh, sure. Please do. Uh, what, what, why, why would you say there are 2D people? So what's, mm. what's the deleterious effect of 2D people? Is it well, pollution? Mm, there's a number of things. Number one, perhaps insufficient food, okay. leading to starvation. Number two, environmental degradation. Right. Number three, pollution, which is kind of like environmental degradation. Number three, um, the faster spread of disease, perhaps, uh-huh. through, through more dense populations. And number, number five, is that four or five? Is that four? I think we're on eight. Right, eight. Yeah. Number, number 12, um, probably something to do with border insecurity mm-hmm. because mass migrations compel nations to get violence. Violence, right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, you know, maybe uh, psychological distress as well. Maybe uh, all the kinds of uh, dysfunctions we see in large populations have to do with population pressures. So if we could get people to have enough food to eat, that squirrel is leaping up and down and going in circles. It's going to be, you know, if, uh, it'll be easily distracted. <laughs> by the way, uh, gentle listener, uh, Graham is a dog. <laughs> He's distracted by squirrels. I was drinking out of the bird bath. That's anyway, okay. Back to the matter at hand. If we had enough food and we had clean energy uh, and we had the distribution of wealth and resources so that violence wasn't occurring, then that would actually make the population problem go away. So it's actually not really a numbers game we're talking about. The. Um yeah, I, I would. The number could be too much or too little, depending on what's happening with those. With those when we talk people. about population expansion, growth, overpopulation, we're talking really about Malthus. Remember Malthus, that dude from the was it 17th century? That's my Malthusian. Exactly question. right. So Malthus believes that population growth is geometric, exponential, mm-hmm. and food production is arithmetic, linear. As a result, there's always going to be a point at which population growth exceeds food production. We call that the Malthusian trap. But it hasn't happened at a global level. So the pushback tends to be that you know um, population growth is not uh, exponential. It's something else. Or there are other factors that prevent us from running out of food, like new technologies or new economies, like uh, when Marx suggested that labor is capital. So suddenly having a lot of people produces wealth. And this is where I want to go with this. Because the wealthiest parts of the world are declining in numbers. And so to maintain their wealth, they need to augment their populations. Mm -hmm. So um, in order to do that, they either either need to squeeze out more kids or they need to increase their uh, immigration policies. So I believe a lot of the the crises that we're seeing in in some parts of the world, like Europe, um, with, you know... uh, large amounts of immigrants coming in and supposedly creating cultural conflict 
are the result of demographic pressures um, that require these European populations to augment their population mm -hmm. sizes. It's unavoidable. Yeah, well, I mean, the other case of that would be Japan. Although yeah. I don't see them relaxing their immigration policy anytime soon. But right. So Japan they, is interesting. They are just aging out. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an island of old people with no one to take care of them at a certain point. Right. So where I want to go with this is to talk about the demographic transition. Um, are you familiar with the demographic oh, transition? Oh, is this every society goes through stages? Yeah. Of, yeah. But if you could summarize it. Sure. There are essentially four stages and possibly five. And the transition takes place between stage two and stage three. So in stage one, if we picture what the pre-industrial societies look like, there is agricultural, um, not a lot of healthcare or, or organized services in general. And so people lived in farms for the most part. Uh, you, if you had kids, they tended to die a lot. Right. So you had a lot of kids yeah. because you didn't expect them to live very long. Most people die between the ages of, of one and ten. Right. And, uh, and so the economic cost of having a child was quite low. You actually, um, they were advantageous. Mm -hmm. you, they work the farm and all you had to do was feed them. Mm -hmm. um, pestilence was everywhere. You didn't expect to live very long. So death rates were high, birth rates were high. Yeah. Population size was low. That's stage one. Right. A magical thing happens around stage two. In Europe, stage two was kicked off by the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, and the Hygiene Revolution. So the ability to... Hygiene? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Graham just waved to me and said, hi, comma, Gene. I think they got that. Really? Yeah. I mean, today, my voice, I'm a trained actor. Come on. Um, so with... Uh, uh, with advances like crop rotation and, and selective breeding for crops, we're producing more food, but also we discovered hygiene. So um, the need to wash your hands after going to the bathroom, uh, the need to actually have your toilets. Is indoor plumbing. Indoor plumbing, exactly. At this point already in stage two? Vaccination. Yeah. Right? Oh, really? So stage two is a very long stage. Then. Yeah. It's it, a long it, way from being just subsistent farming to having vaccination. It's 100 years yeah. of, of transition historically. So during stage two, what happens is we die less. So the kids that would have died within the first five years of life are now living. Therefore, fewer of us die. Fewer of us die, but fewer of us die in extreme youth. Yeah. That's that's the key here. Um, but we're still having the same amount of kids. As a result, population size increases right. dramatically. Stage three is the transition. Now, in stage three, something magical happens socially that composes. Explanation. Yeah. Something magical. Well, a social explanation. Oh, and therefore it's magic. It, right. So, because, you know, my students are health sciences students, and I tell them, can you, can you guess what happened in stage three? And, of course, they can't because right. they're thinking in terms of physical interventions. Right. These are social developments, and you being the social guy can probably predict what those uh, evolutions are. Oh, do tell. Well, um, education, number one. Um, changing roles for women. Right. The uh, secularity or secularism. Changing nature of work. Too, changing nature of work. Right. Urbanization. So in stage three, we don't need as many children because we're not living on the farm right. as much. Yeah. And the price of a child goes up. Yeah. So you got to send your kid to school. As you know, being the father of two kids is expensive. And sure is. And women are postponing right. having kids, right? Because they're having more education time. Having fewer kids because they're reproductive years. Exactly. So now birth rate comes down. Um, to, to drop the fall, to meet the falling death rates. So population size starts to plateau. Right. Population growth starts to plateau, rather. Stage four is, is when... Is where we are at, maybe? Yes, we're in stage four, we think. Late okay, stage, just, stage you, four. Just, you just 
Describe stage three. That's right. Okay, right so in stage four, we have very low fertility rates and very low death rates. Okay. So when someone in our lives dies, that's a big deal. Right. Well, how many years ago, that wasn't a big deal. It was sad, but now it's unusual. If someone has a kid, that's a big deal. It's that unusual for right. us now. So um, in stage four, population growth is kind of stable as well, but zero. Because death rate and birth rate are equal again, and they're both low. So the theoretical stage five is where countries like Japan would be. Right. Because their death rate exceeds their birth rate. Right. So the transition takes place between two and three. And the question before us is, are the nations of the developing world where we think most population growth happens, are they transitioning? Mm -hmm. I think they are. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the hate mail that I got was from people who insist that they are not. In fact, that uh, I'm an apologist for the brown horde. <laughs> so there is a racial component to this that I cannot stress yeah. enough. Yeah. That's sort of the idea of, oh, we need we need a greater population, we need to encourage birth rates, but only among certain types of people. Yeah. And then there's people that are actually having lots of babies, but not necessarily, that's not necessarily desirable. There's a documentary on YouTube, I don't want to give it any publicity, so I won't give its name, but it's, um, it's about this phenomenon, and it's an argument that the Western world, by which they mean white people, need to have more children or else they'll be out-reproduced by you know, the non-Western population. Um, so I never understand why that's so worrisome to people. That's what I don't get. But they want more of themselves and less of not them. <laughs> but but like, if you sit down and ask why, they don't have a good reason for that. They, I think they feel is um, the reason is self-evident that, of course, we should... We believe that our values and our our, um, our descriptors of ourselves are innately valuable. Therefore, they should be preserved. Well, then why are you dying out? <laughs> I mean, yeah. if they're so great. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. It's kind of like I'm a brown guy, as you know, as our listeners may know. And you uh, sound brown. Well, thank you. Well, thank you very much. We have sound. <laughs> um, That's not racist. I'm brown. I can do that. Uh, so uh, people always ask me, you know, I, do I intend to marry another? brown woman and have brown kids and I said well that's, that's not a factor people I think about people do ask me that or they have asked me that and, um, and my response is usually oh you know because I need to because the race is dying out there's only a billion of us <laughs> there's no shortage of brown people the race will be fine <laughs> the culture will be fine <laughs> just I mean as you know I don't know you're having your, your genome sequenced right so there's probably a little tiny tiny portion of that genome that makes you different in terms of race from anyone else on this planet. Right. So I don't understand why people are hanging on to that little yeah. tiny piece as if it identifies or defines everything about them. Well, let's play devil's advocate for a second and suggest that maybe they're not talking about race, they're talking about culture and values. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're afraid that that Western culture slash values that they think are, are worth preserving are dying out. I know plenty of people who aren't white that are way more Western yes. than I am. That is obviously the response. Yeah. And when an immigrant arrives, they assimilate rather quickly. Uh, it it's is, not necessarily such a good thing to be so Western. <laughs> but it's the nature of the world. Yeah, the world changes. I, I know. I'm paying a little bit of that was, that was no, out of good. I just think to sit these people down and say, yes, but why, <laughs> is it, why is it so imperative that people that look like you right. outnumber people who don't look like you? They don't really have a good answer. So that's the, the hate mail I got from the right wing. Yeah. I got hate mail from the left wing as well. Can you imagine why? Well, because they think that Overpopulation is a real problem for the environment. For the, for the environment, yeah. precisely. But here's my pushback Which to that. I would actually 
agree with okay. flexibly. That's true. You know, now, about it. here's my pushback. Where do you think all the population growth is happening in the world? Ah, I see. In places that are not destroying the environment. Ooh, aren't you a clever boy? <laughs> it's happening almost exclusively in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Right. In fact, the fastest growing part of the world are Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And those people, their, their per capita consumption of global resources is minuscule compared to you and I. I guess the argument would be once they advance to a state, but then technology is going to be much cleaner by then. I hope. Already they're leapfrogging over yeah. 30 technology that we've used in the past. So, Can so, I ask a quick question? Sure. If you wanted a quick measure, indicator of where society is in these stages, would yeah. it be the median age of the population? That's one thing we look at. We look at the population pyramid, we call it, demographic pyramid. So the pyramid shows us for each age group how many men and women are, are in each of those groups. So um, if you imagine um, the older years on top and the younger years on the bottom, uh, a developing world nation, like a stage two nation, would have a very broad, flattened out pyramid, right? Right, because most people are very young and very few are old. But for a country like Japan, it's almost a cylinder, right? Because very few are, are young and most are old. So that's a quick way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is just look at birth rates and death rates, and see which how high they are and how different they are from each other, and look at total fertility rates, so the number of of children produced by a woman lifetime. So the replacement rate for most nations is about 2.3 to 2.5 uh, children per woman. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is we need one child to replace the man and one child to replace the woman in a heterosexual coupling. And because some children die, you need something, a fraction above that. Yeah. So um, so Canada, the replacement rate is about 2.1, 2.2. Those 0.3 of a child, they're easier to take care of. They are. Place. And, you know, they have yeah. one fewer orifice to have to feed. They usually stick them in the corner somewhere and they don't take up much space. Yeah, and, you know, good book. Bookshelves. Yeah, I know we're going with this. I know we're going with this. <laughs> okay, so third off the um, the projections of the demographic transition. Some of the ones that I mentioned in the Huffington Post article are that we think by about twenty seventy, um, uh, the population of the Earth will plateau at about twelve billion. De yeah, depending on which which model you use. Right, some say twelve billion, some say fifteen billion. Have people calculated the carrying capacity of the Earth? Does that exceed well, it? Or? It depends, right? It depends on um, what kinds of foods those people expect to have. It right. depends on whether you think peak oil is a real thing. It depends on whether the economies of those nations will be manufacturing economies, agrarian economies, or information economies. So there's a lot of depends going on here. Um, but be in your future. <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, if the demographic transition is true, and I think it is, and I'll tell you why I think it is in a second, but I think it is, that means we don't need these uh, furtive, frequent calls for population control all the time. Because when people call for population control, they're saying those people over there need to be controlled. It's right. never these people here. Right. Those brown, usually brown, usually Muslim hordes, right? It's right. very specific demographic we're criticizing, need to be controlled. And my pushback is, no, they don't. What they need is development. They need education for the women. They need economic development yeah. uh, society, and that will naturally reduce fertility. Right. Get closer to that. Uh, Stage three. Precisely. Transition. There is a thing, though, called the demographic trap. So you could actually help people. Oh, look at that. And, and achieve the goal of population control. Right. Time. Without having to institute draconian uh, sterilization, sterilization, as has been tried. That's been tried in many places. 
There is a thing called a demographic trap, however. Demographic trap um, is when, I mean, it's a theoretical construct. It's when nations get to stage two, but do not progress to stage three. So they're just exploding in population, but no, no sign of, of, of slowing down. And um, some people say Yemen is in, in demographic trap. Uh, and they think there are some social forces that compel that trappedness. Can you imagine what those social forces might be? Patriarchy. Mm, yeah, I think so. Would be a big one. That's a big one. Yeah. And patriarchy can be closely related to religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, right, yeah. right, so if there there are social forces that are compelling women to remain in a solely reproductive role, mm-hmm. then some people argue that can compel a nation to remain in a stage two. Right. Which is kind of where a lot of it seems right wing politicians in the U.S. Yeah. want to return to right, this idea. Ironically, because they will criticize some nations for doing that, but then want to return their nation to that state as well. I don't think demographic trap is a real thing. I don't. Uh, I've uh, having looked at this around the world. I think most nations are striving to transition. So it took the UK and you know other European nations about a hundred years to um, to go from a like uh, fertility rate from uh, nine to four. It took uh, Iran, I think, 10 years. So the so-called developing countries of today are transitioning faster. And the reason for that is we know how to do it. And the solution is education and wealth. Because nobody wants 12 kids unless you're one of those people. (laughs) Yeah. Education as usual is the magic bullet. Yeah, but I can't stress enough this, this how when we talk about sterilization or population control or things like that, we're always targeting these particular parts of the world, and our rationale is always environmental footprint, but yet those aren't the people creating right. environmental footprint. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's a red herring to talk about population. You should just talk about environmental footprints, Yeah. period, and just say whoever has the biggest environmental footprints should be doing the most to reduce those. That's right. Not talking about all oh, those people over there are too numerous. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You, you want to allow another thousand people to exist on this planet? Take one fewer flight per year. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Simple. So do we have any... <laughs> Air Canada, are you sponsored? <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. We, we forgot to uh, name check our sponsor. Oh, yeah. Because uh, we, we haven't done this show in so long. We do have a sponsor, Checked. C-E-C-H-E-K-D. Check it out, Ray Wong. Yeah, and to access uh, Checked, go to sciencemonkey.ca slash Checked. And uh, to access our books, because we write books. We're, check. Yeah. we're smart mother lovers. Check for public. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to riff off the check here. Go to... Uh, I'll write you a check. Uh, there's a chess joke here somewhere, but <laughs> I don't want to do it. I don't want to sink that low. Yeah. Oh, go on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, to buy our books, go to Amazon.ca. No, go to uh, ScienceMonkey.ca slash Amazon. But that may change soon because Amazon is doing away with their A stores. And it may really? have changed the website a little bit. Uh, I think it's time for some facts and furious, my friend. And then later I can go to, we can open up the benevolent and Oh, do you have something for that? I do. Oh, let's do that now. Let's, okay. let's insert the music here. Here comes the music. Music, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think it's done. Benevolent Emporium of Celestial Knowledge. I've exclusively done it from China, and I thought we should expand it because there's lots of celestial knowledge of a benevolent nature that came from other parts of the pre-modern world. So I wanted to look at uh, Persia 
as one of those Sweet. sources. And in particular, a scientist, a medical scientist, by the name of Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, he lived from 973 to 1037. And he was one of those polymaths, as you usually are, right? So um, I'll read the little short intro before I read the part of his work. Um, this comes from uh, Fordham University's article on him. Uh, he was a sort of universal genius known first as a physician. To his works on medicine, he afterward added religious tracts, poems, works on philosophy, on logic, uh, physics, on mathematics, and astronomy. He was also a statesman and a soldier, and he's said to have died of debauchery. So, good man. As every good scientist should. Um, so anyway, this was his writing on, on, on medicine, and the introduction to his work on medicine, which I thought was interesting. Again, medicine considers the human body as to the means by which it is cured and by which it is driven away from health. So preventative medicine right off the bat. The knowledge of anything, since all things have causes, is not acquired or complete unless it is known by its causes. Therefore, in medicine, we ought to know the causes of sickness and health. We'll just treat the symptoms. Um, because health and sickness and their causes are sometimes manifest and sometimes hidden and not to be comprehended except by the study of symptoms, we must also study the symptoms of health and disease, but as a root to the causes. Now, it is established in the sciences that no knowledge is acquired save through the study of its causes and beginnings. If it has had causes and beginnings... Oops. <laughs> if it has had causes and beginnings, nor completed except by knowledge of its accidents and accompanying essentials. Of these causes, there are four kinds, material, efficient, formal, and final. That was someone from Ottawa calling me. Oh, maybe it was me. Was I calling you? You don't call me right now, were you? Want to check? Psychically. Material causes on which health and sickness depend are the affected member, which is the immediate subject, and the humorous. My member is affected. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. And these two are subjects that, according to the mixing together, alter in the composition and alteration of the substance, which is less composed, a certain unity is attained. Efficient causes are the causes changing and preserving the conditions of the human body as errors, and what are united with them in evacuation and retention of districts and cities and habitable places, and what are united with them in changes in age and diversities in it, and in races and arts and manners, and bodily and animate movings and restings and sleepings and wakings on account of them, and in things which befall the human body when they touch it and are either in accordance or at variance with nature. So environmental factors, I mean, it's, it's kind of all there. Formal causes are physical constitutions and combinations and virtues which result from them. Final causes are operations, and in the science of operations lies the science of virtues, as we have set forth. These are the subjects of the doctrine of medicine. Whence one inquires concerning the disease and curing the human body, one ought to attain perfection in this research, namely how health may be preserved and sickness cured, and the causes of this kind are rules in eating and drinking, and the choice of air, and the measure of exercise and rest, and doctrine with medicines and doctrine with the hands. All this with physicians is according to three species, the well, the sick, and the medium of whom we have spoken. Hmm. A lot of it's in there that we still are talking about today, sure. just using different vocabulary. Yeah, so essentially you're saying to be well, just eat properly, exercise yeah. properly, and breathe clean air. Breathe clean air. <laughs> Look at that. Revolutionary. Go see your doctor once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Not socially. And your environment might get you sick. Right? Uh, I don't know. know. That's cool. So it was uh, seen a writing in the 10th century. Sweet. So we could close the book of celestial benevolent, celestial emporium of benevolent knowledge. We need like a, a sound effect for closing the book. Yeah, right. It's a very cool. thick tone. I have some questions for you, my friend. About Ibn Sina? No, I do not. Okay. 
Uh, Ibn means son of, right? Okay. Isn't it? Sure. In Arabic? Son of Sina? Sina son? Sina son. Cool. Also, there are Arabic honorifics that mean parent of so and so, but I don't think it's that. All right. Um, oh, this is Persian. Who, which, I got a question for you. Right? Yeah. This, this is the facts and the furious. So I uh, hit the theme music here. Okay. Uh, which gender of shark has the thicker skin and why? Female or male? Which gender of shark has the thicker skin and why? I will say female. Why? She's got to put up with so much shit from the male sharks. Pretty close. <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, male humans have thicker skins than female humans. But female sharks have thicker skins because during mating, right. the males have this tendency to bite the females. Bite yes. It's so interesting, huh? I'll get you guessing that correctly. So. I've got uh, one for you. Okay, go. First of all, do you know how many bones are in the human body? 206. 206. Except for what kind of humans? Babies. Yes, children. Yeah. And how many they have? About a hundred more. Yeah, that's shocking. They yeah. have 300. Yeah. That's I, I knew the, the skull fused together, but mm. I didn't know there were like hundreds of other bones that are fused so together. So much of a baby is cartilaginous. Uh, that's why you can like wiggle them around. Right. Like, you can throw them down. They don't yeah. break as easily. Bounce them. Right. You got like, you got like four years of, of warranty-free right. child care. <laughs> <laughs> you can break it. They, they, they bounce back. Then they harden. Like, oh, this is a keeper. <laughs> So, um, how, how long ago did the dinosaurs die? It's like 63 million, is that right? Oh, I wanted to say more than that, but you could be right. I think it's, it's yeah. Only there's a way we could find out. If only we had like some kind of thing we could type in. For, okay. I think while, it's you're, while you're million. BSing, I'll look that up. But I, I asked because around that same time... There are all sorts of different types of dinosaurs, right? Yeah, around that same time, um, we had a common ancestor mm-hmm. with another smart mammal. Oh, and wait, wait. So that smart mammal was a, was around, and then two descendants. No, okay. another smart mammal exists today. Okay. And our common ancestor existed at around the time that the dinosaurs were killed. Ah, so the the, the smart mammal that exists today, and we came from that common ancestor yeah. that was lived around sixty six million years ago. Look at that. So Mesozoic era. Can you guess who that smart mammal is? <sighs> well, clearly chimps, right? But they're pretty close to us. No, I'm just going to say something. Further apart, like, yeah. a, like a dolphin. Exactly right. Yeah. So dolphins and humans had a common ancestor around the time of the dinosaurs. It's pretty obvious if you stop to think about it, but it's kind of cool. Yeah. So they went back into the water, right? Yeah, that's right. They got out of there. Yeah. <laughs> dry. My skin. It's scaly. <laughs> back into the water. It's warm there. You should teach biology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. Okay. Um, all the planets of our solar system, if you look down from the north, appear to spin counterclockwise, except for one. Uh, Which planet appears to spin clockwise? I want to say Venus. You should right? do what you want to do. Not Venus. It is Venus. Do you know why? Okay, this is... I know Mercury is kind of locked because it's so close to the sun. It's, uh, it's not tidally locked. Tidally it, locked. Uh, it does actually rotate. Why did Venus spin the other way? Because it's upside down. Because uh, of its position in the disk of gas when it was formed. In the the ecliptic? Yeah. No, I don't know. It's because we think it was struck by something. Ah, wow. That must have been a that massive collision. Yeah. To Mind you, the Earth was struck by something. Uh, Superman did that. 
Superman did do that. He reversed what the... a dick, huh? He messed up <laughs> Venus for no particular reason. No, know, not I Venus. Know, right. Turned time around. So that means that time on Venus runs backwards. Yeah. Because that's how time works. That's how time that's works. That's what I didn't understand. About <laughs> Just causing the Earth to spin around. Suddenly reverses time in the universe. No, I'm not buying that. I mean, I'll buy the flying man. He's impervious to everything. I will totally buy the flying man. But I'm not going to going for it. Uh, so, do you know the Earth was struck by something large as well about 4 billion years ago? And where's the moon comes from, right? That's where the moon comes yeah. from. So, it was struck by a Mars-sized object. So, the Earth used to be significantly bigger than it is today. Mm. And so, uh, and the moon, of course, used to be quite closer to the Earth than it is right. now. So, in the time of the dinosaurs, the moon was enormous. It was enormous. And it's moving further away every year. Huh. Uh, I wonder if, if that hadn't happened, if we would have arisen. It's a good question. So many weird. I, I don't know why um, you know the female reproductive cycle has a lunar aspect to it. Right? Are there, is that a coincidence? I don't know. Maybe maybe one of our listeners could tell us. Mm. Who isn't a freak? <laughs> Do you have a question? Do it exist? Yes. Okay. World's largest amphibian. So not reptile. Right. Amphibian. Right. Good question. Is it um, this? I want to say the what's that thing we use to like make really hot coffee? Oh, a French press. No, you know what I'm talking about. It's a steaming thing. Samovar. It is an S. It's an S. It's also the name of an amphibian. Yeah, I didn't know it was coffee though. Well, maybe it's, I got that wrong. I don't really make. It sounds it. a little bit like colander. But salamander. Salamander. Yes. Is that correct? Is That's correct. Oh, well, it's the giant salamander. Oh, right on. It can grow up to how, how long. So what's a salamander used for if not coffee? Just to clean <laughs> things? No, yeah, I don't I, know. This is the first time I've ever a reference to salamanders and coffee in the same sentence. Am I wrong? Is not a salamander also a thing in the kitchen? Isn't it? Maybe? In your kitchen. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Google this right now. Coffee lost its tail. We have, to, we have to figure this out. Salamander. It grew up to five feet in length. Uh, salamander heater. It's a kind of heater. It's a forced air convection heater. Right. Or whatever. So anyway, so the, the giant salamander does what? How big it's is five it? feet long. Wow. Didn't wasn't there a Star Trek Voyager episode where they turn into giant salamanders? I don't Because no one watches that show. Okay. Okay. No, you go. My turn. Your turn. Right. Your turn. Okay. Um, here is. Well, it's not a question. It's a fact you may find interesting. Okay. The, uh, the, you can turn it into a question. Oh, I could. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, there is a star. Don't let's put a question mark on the end of it. There is a star in the sky okay. whose name you might know. Um, that uh, it's a Steven red. Steven Seagal. It's <laughs> he hasn't been a star in a very long time. Uh, it's a potato a, with a goatee. <laughs> he's a vampire with diabetes. Uh, <laughs> uh, this star is a red supergiant, and if it were to go supernova then our sky would light continuously for two months. And this could happen anytime. It could two happen months. It could happen right now, a thousand years from now, or tomorrow. What is, is that it star? Visible? Is it, yes, we know the star. In fact, the star's name is so well known that there's Alpha a movie. Centauri. There's a movie named oh, after the star. Not, oh, Sirius? That's not a funny Sirius, movie. Sirius is blue. Oh, Red Dwarf. No. no. Uh, Starring Funny movie Michael and Keaton. After a star? Starring Michael Keaton. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Betelgeuse. Ah, I did not know. What's yeah. the proper pronunciation? I'm, I'm assuming Betelgeuse. You're the linguist. It's, yeah. it's Greek, right? Yeah. It's German, rather. Yeah. Say it three times and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, so it could go supernova any time. If it did, we'd have total daylight for two months. Is that 10? 
all day and all day. What would that do for vegetation oh, and for true. wildlife? Yeah, the wildlife would go kooky. Yeah, I mean, the plants would go nuts, yeah. but the wildlife would go kooky. Yeah, that would be awful. But, so that happen. but the vampires would die out. There you go. Including Steven Seagal? <laughs> well, the diabetes would kill him. That would be wonderful. <laughs> if he's listening, I, we don't mean that, Mr. Seagal. <laughs> you could <can> take him. <laughs> <laughs> to the movies. <laughs> All right, to the movies. To the bank, How the blood bank. Sorry. Does it take food to entirely digest? Entirely digest? Entirely digest. So I, they don't define what entirely means. So I'm assuming from the, when it enters to when it leaves. Okay. Perhaps. Okay, I'll go with that. I'll yeah. go with that. I'm asking you. No, no, I'm oh, thinking. Oh, 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 you're thinking. thinking. Oh, you're cogitating. I'm cogitating. You're pondering. Um, you're ruminating. Ah, that's a good one. Wow. Good. I'm digesting. <laughs> Uh, it's a bit too long well, I want to say like the the time of peristalsis oh. is only a few hours. Okay. However, wait, peristalsis. Yeah. Really? Oh, you, how? When? Okay, it starts in the throat. No. When does peristalsis end? Peristalsis is the process, All the, the way movement through the intestines. Yeah, the right. movement. Yeah. And um, but peristalsis is also that wasn't he in Beverly Hills Nine Two One Zero? Um, I have to, a, a, to take out that joke. That's a bad joke. He was a crooner. <laughs> <laughs> peristalsis hey, and his big um, So it's if it's the time of peristalsis, then usually 24 hours. However, however, it depends on what we're eating, doesn't it? This is true. So I'm going to just be a, a good player for this game, say 24 hours. Uh-uh. What is it? Well, I don't know how reliable this is, but it's says 12 hours. Okay. That makes sense. 24 hours seems a lot. Seems a lot. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, I mean if, you, if you start, if you eat something and it starts to disagree with you, it doesn't take. Yeah, then it's gone. It's coming out both holes at that point. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, let me see here. Oh, so which drupaceous fruit? Drupaceous. Drupaceous. Now you're challenging my yeah. vocabulary. Were Hawaiian women once forbidden by law to eat? Okay, I've got to figure out what drupaceous means. Does it mean it looks droopy? Uh, Dude, your earlobes are so droopacious. Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I, I have to know what droopacious means in order to... Let's see. Resembling that. a droop. And a droop there is a stone fruit. An, an indehiscent fruit. So I'm going to guess stone fruit? Which the outer fleshy part uh, surrounds a single shell or pit. I actually... Ask Google to define rapacious and said, did you be rapacious? Wow. Did you be propitious? Did you? No. All right. So what's the answer? <laughs> the answer is a coconut. Even I've lost it. I know. The answer is a coconut. Coconuts. So okay, apparently wild. there's something in Hawaiian lore called kapu, and kapu is a code of conduct, mm -hmm. and it dictates what people are allowed to do. Apparently women were not to eat, allowed to eat certain things, including coconuts. Coconuts. So Any I don't know reason why. for that? They resembled testicles. Mm. Yeah. There's something called a kappa in Japanese folklore. Oh, was that? It's this little creature that lives in, in coconuts in the water, actually. And if you get too close to the water, it will pull you in Ooh. and then pull out your anus ball, where your soul is. Cast. Your anus ball. Your anus ball. The Japanese believe that everyone had this hidden ball in their anus that was the seed of their soul, and the kappa was after that, so it would pull out your anus ball. Now, the kappa, <laughs> they would be known to go on land as well. 
But in order to survive on land, they were water creatures. They had these little indentations mm-hmm. in the top of their heads that they would fill with water. I'm not making this up. I, I know. This up. They would fill it with water. And as long as the water was there, they could, they could survive. But if the water fell out, then they would be paralyzed. And so if you saw a kappa coming to you, the, the trick was you would bow to it. And they're unfailingly polite, so they would bow back to you. Wow. And the water would flow out and they'd be paralyzed. They'd so away. they're polite and pluckers. Save your anus fall. Yeah, exactly. So is um, is that why butt plugs are so popular in Japan <laughs> to protect their anus balls? <laughs> but 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 plugs. <laughs> I think that's, that's enough. That's I think <laughs> I think we've gone as little as a little bit like a turtle and a monkey. It's actually an interesting creature. K A P P A. You just every right. time you look it up. Like, are the hands specially designed, modified for for grasping anus balls? Anus balls, I don't know, but they actually have a woodcut prints of of the extraction taking place. If you want to find out. Wow, I think we just um, got the image for this episode on the website. <laughs> there you go. Okay, cool. Uh, and are, are you going to ask me one, or do I want to ask you one? I think I think we're done. We're done on that. Note. <laughs> You're worried can, about your anus ball. How can you top ahead. anus balls? Because now I'm thinking about the title for this episode. It's going to be "Protect Your Anus Ball." It's going to do wonders for our readings. <laughs> All right. So until next time, dear listener, this has been Monkey Ray and with Monkey Graham. We didn't introduce ourselves, but no, now, we didn't. now I know who we are. Till next time. Till next time. Oop oop, Graham. Bum, bum. Oh, yeah. You know, this is a re-recording of our intro. That's, right. That's much better than the other recording. Oh, well, yeah. they're, they're not going to know what the other recording was. They'll see. They won't see. <laughs> they, they will hear. They will hear. So a kind listener. Anyway, we also forgot to introduce ourselves properly last time. Well, that's what I'm doing now. Oh, okay. You interrupted me. Yeah, I stomped I, all over your intro. Jesus, please. man. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm here with the Jello man, apparently. The Kool-Aid guy. Cool. Oh, that's right. Jello man, Kool-Aid I guy. I thought it was like some sort of... <laughs> Some sort of house music hit from the 1980s. That that bump bump. One of our listeners will know. Should I put the other intro at the end? Yeah. <laughs> as, as an outtake? Yeah, exactly. All right. Or uh, this could be the outtake. Anyway, what's your name? Uh... <laughs> I am here with Dr. Graham Sanders of the University of Toronto. And I'm here with Ray Watt of University of Ottawa. That is correct. All right.